Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Adela Marcy Unplugged, and after last week's doozy of a show with David Garfinkel, I'm actually proud, even more so now, to actually have the one and only legend, Matt Fury himself, on the show. Um, Matt has been a massive influence in my life, my financial, um, my financial life, my personal life, and my fitness life. Um, something that a lot of people don't know is when I did Muay Thai and MMA, uh, I actually did go through the uh, combat abs stuff with one of my trainers, and he really, like, I, I knew his name, but I didn't know that it was the same person until, I think it was like five years later when I was reading through some email stuff, and I'm like, I know this name, I know this program, holy crap, it's the same person. So, <laughs> without further ado, I'm very, very, very pleased to actually welcome the one and only Matt Fury to the show. Matt, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. It's uh, It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. Just a real quick shout out to our sponsors for the show. Uh, today's sponsor, of course, is mattfury.com. Uh, go there, check out Matt's stuff, just get to know him. And also Fury Faithful, that's F-U-R-E-Y faithful.com. Um, and again, as always, guys, please go ahead and like, rate, subscribe, and comment on the show. And check out the other episodes on adelmarcy.com. Now, Matt, this, is, this has been some time coming for me to actually get you on the show. I think I've... Uh, wanted to for some time but we've always had like a scheduling conflict but i'm so proud that, i'm so happy to say that you're here my my first question more than anything else is how did you get into martial arts well that depends on what we call a martial art uh, <clears throat> my first book was the martial art of wrestling published in 1996 so it, it basically uh possibly for the first time in a book in the Western world, classified Western wrestling as a martial art. The same with boxing. So I, th I started thinking about it. We have all these martial arts from Asia that we think of as martial because they're from Asia. <laughs> but we have, we have wrestling with submission holds and we have boxing. We have, of course, with MMA and all of that nowadays. But uh, so if we were to classify wrestling as a martial art, it would be at eight years of age. Wow. Then when it got into uh, the Asian martial arts would be 1989, 1990, I believe, <laughs> when I was living in California. The, the reason I got into it was because I'd been a competitive athlete uh, all my life. Now I'm out of college. I'm working as a personal trainer in a gym. I'm feeling that something is missing, something's lacking. And I had benefited from a class I took as a freshman in, uh, in college on relaxation techniques. And it was all martial arts-related techniques taught as relaxation techniques. I then um, I then started exploring different schools and what would I start in and that's really how it got going something was missing I needed something physical beyond run walk lift weights do calisthenics jump rope I needed something that I, I felt uh, gave me a connection yeah. to uh, to life at a deeper level. Yeah. 
And something I will say right now is anyone that's a wrestler listening to this, it, that competitiveness never dies down because I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I can tell you right now, ha- whenever I take on a wrestler, it's constantly <laughs> mind-blowing just seeing them move the way that you guys do. It's, it's, it's incredible. Now, something I do want to jump across from um, just the whole martial arts aspect is your book, 101 Ways to Monetize... Uh, what was it? 101 ways to monetize money to yourself or magnetize money? To magnetize. That's Sorry, the one. Magnetize. Magnetize money to yourself. I should know that because that book has saved my life so many times. And uh, I first came across it when I was being an apprentice when I was like 19, 20 years old as a copyright and broke out of my mind. And someone gave it to me and they were like, my, my my uh, mentor at the time just said, I want you to read this. I want you to memorize this. I want you to practice this. And again, this is one of those moments where I started to understand you outside of the martial arts and just see you from the marketing mindset side of things. So in that book, there's so many so many laws that actually work. Every law works, but I mean like in the sense of that work in every situation. But I wanted to ask which one is the most important, if you had to pick like an important set to initially follow through and always keep in mind. Man, you caught me off guard because there's there's a hundred and one there's a hundred and one in there. Oh, definitely. And there's hundred and one ways to magnetize money. And the audio version that you can get from Nightingale Conant or from Audible.com, uh, I add lib in between, so there's probably two hundred to three hundred ways. Uh, I would say the most important is the i mean number one the first one is start your day with yes energy where you think about it uh, i heard this years and years ago that there there's two orientations toward life you can get up in the morning and you say uh good god morning or you can get up and say good morning god they're two completely different well, if we take the religion and the spirituality out of it to just make it as, as user-friendly for everyone, the, you, you have two orientations. Oh, no. I'm so tired. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get enough sleep. Oh, I got to go to work today. And then you have the yes, 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 yes. And just by repeating that word, Silently, out loud, in a whisper, with with more vocals, it changes how how your brain works, how your brain operates. This is most important. And then after a while, you just it becomes a habit, and you wake up every day with yes energy. But I think that's that's principle number one. And if you aren't saying yes to life. If you aren't saying yes to new experiences, new ideas, uh, new books, new people, then it's as though the river is stagnant and there's no flow. The way to create flow is newness. It doesn't mean you make things new just for the sake of being new. You can be practicing something very, very traditional and you can be traditional with it. But some aspect of it needs to be new for it to be fresh. 
And when we're we're working a job or we're an entrepreneur or copywriter, whatever it is you do, it's very easy to start thinking that today is the same old, same old, just rewind. But it's not. Every day is a lifetime. Every day is uh, an entire array of new experiences if you look at it that way. But if you look at it as the same as every other day, it's Groundhog Day, we call it in the U.S., uh, <laughs> then that means a repeat. What we want is new experiences, new ideas, new people, new books, new ways of expressing yourself, learning, learn a new vocabulary word every day. And after a year, you're amazed that I never heard these words before. I never, I didn't even know they existed. It wasn't, it wasn't a situation where you heard the word but didn't know the meaning. It's most of these words you never even saw or heard before. Then all of a sudden, once you know them, you're seeing them more frequently. Well, that's the same idea. When you start your day with yes energy, then new experiences open up to you. You're not blocking yourself. That's amazing. I, I love that. And that is something that I do put into a practice every morning. Uh, I, my practice, I took it one step further because of um, I'm one of those people that has to take it a step further at times. I actually recorded an audio uh, over music with um, just relaxing music where it's just me saying yes, yes, and enthusiastically putting that whole yes energy into, into them. And because um, I moved my room around, put my, uh, one, of my, one of my computers in my room and left it connected to my iPod. So when I'm sleeping, that's quietly on in the background, just putting me into a lovely state of rest while I'm listening to myself pump up. So when I wake up, I find I'm in a happier mood. I get up earlier before my alarm does, and it, it just changes me physiologically and physically. So I, I love that. So I thank you for that. But my personal favorite law still has to be um, the law of carrying cash on you. Like even two bucks or well, two pounds in the UK, but like even two dollars in the US, carrying that with you as a constant reminder that you're not poor, that you're actually abundant. Just and like, that you're not broke. Yep. You're not broke. And and the understanding is uh, in the classical Chinese book, twenty five hundred years old, the Dao the Dao De Jing by Lao Tzu. It's really clear, you know, this that the great comes from the small. The many comes from the few. There's no other way. This is the seed. So if you just carry a couple dollars with you, you always have some cash, and you always look at it as it's multiplying, it's growing, then it will. But if you look at it as not enough, one of the things I told in a seminar back in 2007 and other times, but the first time I revealed it, I remember, was was 2007 and it was this there's the biblical line of you know uh about the poor versus the rich and so on and the line was that uh basically the rich it, it's a the whole way of saying the rich get richer and the poor get poorer yeah. but in the time it was said to he who hath more will be given to he who hath not, even that will be taken away. So you think about it. You think in mental pictures of what's being said here. 
how can you take away something somebody doesn't have? See, so you mm-hmm. have to you take that thing. If, if if you have, to you who have, we're going to give you more. To do to those of you who don't have, we're going to even take that away. Well, how can you take away what's not there? Because it's really talking about the mindset or the mental picturing of the person. You can make a million dollars a year and think you don't have any money. You think you don't have enough. You think you're not doing and uh, doing well enough and so on. And so there's a lack of gratitude. And when there's a lack of gratitude, sort of the universe comes up and says, you know, this guy, he's never really been happy about all the things I've done for him. Take him away. Yep. But the person who starts off with two nickels <laughs> and he's grateful for it, pretty soon they're two dimes and then two quarters and then a couple dollar bills or pounds to rub together. And you start to activate the law of increase. The, the universe looks and said, now this is a grateful heart. Give this person more because he's grateful. It's the same if you go into a restaurant and you eat and you pay the bill and the waitress and the people who work there never tell you thanks for coming that they're just they just take your order only and they never ask you how you're doing they never ask how's your day going they don't show any sense of gratitude for the fact that you came there and chose them over a thousand other places you could have gone or stayed home then it's it's uh, a situation where next time that it's you're thinking about eating, you're going to gravitate toward the restaurant that gave you the best feeling. There's a there's a Chinese restaurant in Tampa, Florida, where we live. The owner greets you at the front door and says, "Thank you for not cooking." <laughs> I love that. I actually love you know? that. <laughs> Thank you for not cooking. She greets you with that, and when you're paying the bill and leaving, she says it again. That's sometimes it's, it's sometimes it can feel a little bit annoying uh, because it's the same exact thing said every time, but it actually does pull me back in there. Yeah. So um, even though it's slightly annoying, I'd rather be thanked than not thanked. Exactly. And it does it does plant in my mind the idea that, you know, do I want to cook tonight? Eh, let's go where the person is actually grateful that we're not cooking. Yeah, it's a brilliant thing. And it's the same with um it, same with business really is become grateful for the clients that you have. Because that in fact, brings in more clients. And that, that's been a practice that I've been going back to recently, and it's helped out. So thank you so much for that. Now, I'm going to jump directly into the deep end here, Matt, because I can't have the king of email on my show and not talk about email. I mean, anyone that's listening to this and doesn't know how great Matt is at email copywriting, just quickly Google the name Matt Fury email, and I guarantee you will see enough results that will make you go, okay, I better shut up and pay attention. Um, my actual, my, my question really is, what's the biggest difference in psychology between writing a direct response sales letter or sales letter online 
and writing an email like that you found what's the biggest difference in discrepancy well they are similar in terms of how i uh approach it the the biggest difference would be the length generally you look at a long-form sales letter uh it's called long form for a reason it's going to be four eight sixteen or more pages it's going to have bullet points there's going to be testimonials there's going to be uh case studies and so on it still, in my opinion, needs to have a story. Yep. It needs to uh, be written almost as though it's a letter to a friend. Uh, this is why they start off traditionally, dear friend. The email is the same, only it's, it's shorter. And it can be because you're developing a relationship with your list. There's a lot of rules that people uh, apply to a direct marketing sales letter that don't apply here. If you're writing your email list every single day, you can be much more colloquial, much more friendly, and a lot more personal. You begin to develop the guy or girl next door type of I guess, relationship with your reader. The reader, over time, will feel as though he knows you personally and has talked to you and had numerous conversations, even though you have no idea who this person is other than, you know, if he's bought from you and he or, he or she's a customer, well, you know that, but you've never really seen the person's face You've never spoken to the person. You don't know them from anyone else if if uh, they're walking down the street in front of you. But they know you. <laughs> See? And they had, they had this sense that I know this person, and this person is interesting. They, they then want to know more about you. So they buy your products and then they go to your seminars. They get coaching from you. They want to be associated with you. With a sales letter, even though it's still personal and even though it's still has the story component and so on, you're going to, there's a lot of things that you wouldn't do. You wouldn't, uh, you, you mentioned uh, the, the whole topic of swearing, for example. Yep. If, you're, if you're sending out a 16-page sales letter, unless uh, it's going out to heavy metal headbanger types, you probably don't want to drop the F-bombs and so on. Yep. In, e in email, there are some direct response copywriters who form these, these rules that you don't swear. You don't have a potty mouth. It's rude. It's immature. It's this. It's that. And the fact of the matter is, is most of the time, I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, I don't swear in my emails. But I don't want to make a freaking rule about it either. Yeah. Because if it's appropriate, I want to have that as an ace card if needed. And... and 
the nuns when I went to school would always get on me because I would say hell damn and ass. He's a dumbass. <laughs> He's a dumbass. What the hell are you doing? Damn that guy. Or whatever. <laughs> they they get on me and say I was swearing and my answer was always look, all three of these words you're claiming are swear words are in the Bible. So leave me alone, damn it. <laughs> that, that's so true. And I, I I actually agree with you. I kind of say something that works for me more so is write like you speak to your audience. So for instance, in a, in a sales letter, I, I generally don't swear on my podcast. I do because my podcast is a very relaxed area. Where I'm like, this is where I want people to get to know me. So if you're hanging out with me, I'm, I'm from England. It, it's damn near a second language over here. So for us, it's one of those things where we just have that conversation. It's just normal. And I usually match the person I'm speaking to. Like for instance, I don't think I've actually sworn that much or I've sworn maybe once during our, sh our podcast. I don't really, it, it's like, if it comes out, it comes out and that's fine. But with email, something I took away from your teachings, um, from years and years ago from being taught this was the idea of being a welcomed friend in, in someone's inbox, as in, I'm really looking forward to hearing from Adil and just having that vulnerability to, and that honesty to say, Hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm thinking, and this is how I can help you. Um, and moving that along. Now, my question to you here is: Considering what's changed since you've been, um, when I say what's changed, I mean sense of technology and how the education has become more. The by sophistication has actually increased. Do you still find the same? This obviously the same uh, principles exist, but like, do you find this a little bit more difficult, or do you find it a little bit more simpler to reach a connection today than it is in the past? Than it has been in the past for emails. I think the ability to make the connection is the same. The one thing that is different is there's so many more people who are emailing you've got to really be good to stand out. And it's not that hard to be good because most people write really crappy emails that mm -hmm. don't connect, that don't connect. If you're the, if you're the person who does connect, it doesn't matter how many emails are out there that they have to weed through. They still want to get to yours. But that, that's the one thing that is a little different in the, in the old days, it was basically, um, that part of it, that aspect was easier, but it, it means it works too. But I would say that the key thing you got to understand with email is that an email is a letter to a friend, much more so than a sales letter. A sales letter will say, dear friend, and it has that quality of being a letter to a friend, but at the same time, you know, it's not. But an email really is uh, much different when you develop this kind of personal relationship. Why I'm saying this is because the same exact verbiage, the same style of writing is easily translatable to social media. There is where you can easily pick up the slack. So if you're getting uh, less response, let's say, than before because there's so many people emailing, it's fine. 
you just start doing the same thing on Facebook, on Twitter, you're, you're a little bit limited with, or a lot limited, but uh, then you start using Instagram, start using some of these social media platforms. And if you were, I don't have a YouTube channel, but if I did, and sometime I, I do look forward to having one, if I did have a YouTube channel, it would be virtually the same as my email. And just the only difference is you see me and hear me as opposed to just reading the words. That's amazing. Oh, can you hear me okay, Matt? I can hear you. Yeah, I was just saying that's amazing. Sorry, please continue. Oh, I'm finished with this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I guess the thing I did want to ask it was because I've I've had that same stuff and it does work, but for the people that are out there listening in and wondering, because I know I was one of them, um, when you're actually writing your email, when you're writing your Facebook state, uh, social media pieces and stuff like that, the same principle applies of you know being quite friendly. Is there a how do I put this? Is it like a schedule you follow? For instance, like today I'm going to answer some questions. And this day I'm going to tell a story. This day I'm going to, I'm going to position myself. This day I'm just going to post up a photo of myself um, abroad. Is there anything like that? Or is it just very organic and just comes up whatever you feel like writing? It's a very good word. Very good question. It's organic. It's spontaneous. It's a friendship you're developing. If you, you have a true friend, you don't plan out the week. And say, all right, on Monday, I'm going to speak to him about this, and I'm going to tell him these stories. On Tuesday, I'm going to come give him a gift. On Wednesday, <laughs> I'm going to invite him for lunch. I mean, maybe there are people who are that way. I've never been that way. When, when I have a good friendship with someone, and I call him up on the phone, do I know what I'm going to say before I talk? No. You just call your friend, you connect, you start talking. It's the same way. You go to breakfast with someone. This doesn't mean that there are times where you are very specific on what you're going to do that day, but it's not every single time. I would say 80% of the time you're in flow, and 20% 20 20 of the time you're real specific. Let's go bowling. Let's go play golf. And let's go to the bar. Let's go to the ball game and so on. So that, that part of it's specific, but the conversation you have with the person when you're at the bar playing golf, going bowling or going to a ball game or concert, whatever it is, or going for a walk, you don't plan out everything you're going to say and how you're going to say it, you just have the framework. Where, where are you going, and approximately how long are you going to be there? You get an idea of that. Yeah. Then you just carry on. You, you allow it to develop organically. You allow it to be spontaneous. That's incredible. And I like the fact that you're very much like me in that sense, because the moment I started putting structures in place for that, I lost all flavor of writing for my own for my own stuff. I mean, it starts to become very repetitive and methodical, and you kind of lose a little bit of the personality and story in there. So, Matt, again, I don't want. To, I know today we don't actually have uh, again like the full hour, but I do want to get this question to you. It's like three questions in particular I had in mind. 
And the first one is, um, what would you say are your three most essential books for someone that is in business to pick up? The three most essential books for people who who are in business to pick up. And I'm going to throw in a condition here because I know t- I'm going to recommend these books myself right now. So no, so we'll get three three different ones from you. Anything by Maxwell Maltz, Psycho Cybernetics, Zero Zero Resistance Living. Those books, they must be on your shelf right off the bat. Those are the recommendations I know. I, I have a feeling Matt would actually go there with because they're just brilliant. They're absolutely just brilliant. They most certainly are. I think uh, that's a wise choice. I would say that most people need to learn how to sell and they don't know how. And the difference between where you are today and where you'll be five years from now, Jim Rohn always said, will be found in the books that you've read. I would change it a little bit and say the difference in your income between where you are today and where you are five years from now will be found in the books you've read. People read a lot of books on direct marketing and copywriting and sales letter writing and all of this, but really the true great, the the greatest uh, sales letter writers who ever lived were all superior salespeople first. They were door-to-door salespeople or they did Tupperware parties or some variation, but they were really good at personal selling. And because of that, they learn how to sense, smell, see, feel the hot buttons. <laughs> they, can, they can actually, I think, picture and remember how people respond to various words and phrases that are used. I would uh, tell you that my life began to change as a businessman in uh, 1988 when I started learning to sell. I'd been in business for a year with really no clue how to do it. The fact that I survived was amazing in and of itself, but I was never going to get any higher rates than what I was currently charging, and I, I was charging almost nothing. Might as well have trained them for free. Um, and I, I got a book by Tom Hopkins, how to master the art of selling. Great book. That was, that was a huge, huge change. Then you have Zig Ziglar's, uh, what is it? Uh, secrets of closing the sale. And then Brian Tracy, the things that he put out on, uh, the psychology of selling, I thought were instrumental in helping me. And then there was this book, I think the author was Donald Moyne, and it was called Hypnotic, I think it was called Hypnotic Selling or Hypnotic Selling Secrets. It was huge. It was huge. I'll check that one uh, out for sure for myself. Yeah, yeah, that, I mean, we're going way, way back in time to probably um, 1990 or 91 when I first read these, so I hope you can still get them. But I, I know that I know the other ones you can, and now because of this thing called Amazon.com, you can you can find pretty much anything, even if it was published two hundred years ago. Somebody somewhere might have it. But that that is that was a big big uh, book for me. I I read it one time. It 
talked about a lot of the principles that I talk about today to, to some degree, but it wasn't, it wasn't a book I thoroughly studied as much as Tom Hopkins. That was number one. That was number one, that you have to establish trust. You have to establish likability and rapport with people. And once that is there, then you learn how to ask questions instead of talking. Most people think that selling is talking, but it's really a lot of really strategic, polished listening skills. And it transfers to sales letter writing and email writing because if you look at Gary Halbert's collections of sales letters and newsletters, you'll see weave throughout, he will ask questions in this way. This makes sense, doesn't it? Don't you agree? Didn't it? Shouldn't it? Couldn't it? Wouldn't it? Isn't that true? Isn't this, uh, isn't this true? Why did I say this this way? I said it this way because that's selling. Yep. That's straight out of Tom Hopkins' book before he wrote it. Because <laughs> uh, uh, Tom Hopkins was taught by a, a man who gave seminars on selling all around the country for decades. That was his teacher. And... It goes back to Elmer Wheeler. It goes back even before that. In the early 1900s, when people uh, weren't playing video games and watching television all day and playing yeah. on apps and so on, people actually had really polished and powerful communication skills and abilities. I agree. I mean, it's, it's, I couldn't agree more with you. Yeah. So the selling, the ability to sell and understand uh, how to ask questions, how to get rapport, how to, how to present things in a, a pleasing way to the prospect, that having insight and knowledge into how to do that will translate into virtually every area of your life, especially the copywriting and so on. It's just... Uh, copywriting, sales letter writing, email writing is salesmanship in print. Period. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And something I just want to like touch upon there as well is uh, Tom Hopkins's book is probably one of the greatest books I've ever read. Um, as Gary Halbert, when because I had a very storied career on how I got to like being a copywriter, but at eighteen. I remember thinking I was terrible at selling. Now, in retrospect, I wasn't. I wasn't bad, but I wasn't polished. So I did door-to-door -door sales, as Gary Halbert suggested, and um, I, I I picked up Tom's books because they were like the best thing I could find, and probably had the most impact on my on my mindset of how I sell. And actually, how this podcast came about. It's very good to hear. <laughs> so you can relate to what I'm saying entirely those books are amazing every book that you've listed off i've got i've had in my collection since 2007 2008 when i started my career and it's just like those are the books i went after constantly because they're gold anything out there is just that even the stuff i do is a derivative of what i learned elsewhere and i just put my own spin on it my own way of teaching it but i can tell you it's it's amazing stuff that, that you can always pick up 
So what were the books that you actually, so you definitely recommended sale, recommended sales books, but which were the three? I know we've got Tom Hopkins's books. We've got uh, Zig Ziglar's book and we've got, I, I gave the Brian Tracy audio book, which yes. was, uh, he did, he did put out a book. I, I believe the name was advanced selling techniques. Yep. But his original, the original, uh, time that I encountered Brian Tracy's material was 1990 and it was the psychology of selling 1989 or 1990 psycho I, I can remember it coming audio tapes being shipped to me from Nightingale Kona I can yeah. see myself receiving it and listening to it in my car it was really profound really powerful stuff I mean again that was another one I went through uh, and again, I love Nightingale Conan because they actually had a lot of this stuff on them. Um, so I guess my favorite question realistically here, and this is one that I love asking just simply because so many entrepreneurs have gone through it. And that is when you had hit rock bottom confidence wise, I don't mean just financially, maybe like maybe you were financially in trouble. Maybe you, you doubted your ability or you just didn't feel, you know, you didn't feel it like it was just like you were on a, on a different level that you hadn't felt in a very long time. How did you raise yourself from that position back to feeling confident and happy again? Well, let me think here. <clears throat> First of all, I got to figure out when that time was. <laughs> um, and it's, it's been a while, <laughs> but uh, I would say back in, I would say when I had my gym as a personal trainer, there were two moments. One was at the end of a year before I bought Tom Hopkins' book. That helped pull me out of it. I was starting to get uh, physically and mentally tired because I was basically doing slave labor. I was training all these people from morning till night. And as I was doing so, for very little, I, I slept in my gym on a wrestling mat. I didn't have a, an apartment. I didn't have a house. I didn't have a condominium. I didn't own a bed. Uh, these are these are things um, that I don't think I've ever discussed before. But it's a reality. Uh, I didn't think of it so much as rock bottom or having no confidence. I looked at it more as what do I need to learn? What do I need to know? To to go to the next level. Um, then in, when I came out with my first book and videos in 1996, that was a big transition time for me because now I was attempting to run two businesses simultaneously. One was training people and one was, uh, was info publishing creating products and writing ads for them and selling them uh, on web on my website and in magazines and, and the and the similar vehicles that now don't really exist <laughs> some of the things we talked about put it up on a bulletin board <laughs> people might not know what I'm talking about now so I'm kind of editing some of my words before I speak but uh, at that time it was tough because I made the mistake, which I do not encourage others to do, of just cold turkey, I'm going into this. And I devoted more and more time to writing and creating products. 
and less and less time to training people. When people dropped out, which they ultimately do, I wasn't replacing them. It wasn't by, oh, great, I got more time to write. Well, now I've created a situation where you need money to advertise, you need money to buy product, you need money to pay your rent for your facility, <laughs> you got to pay your phone bill <laughs> and all this. And I was so caught up in the creating that I lost sight of some of the left brain mathematical uh, operations, which I had always handled very well up until that point. At that time, I made a wise move, and that was to put my wife in charge. And being she's Chinese, you know, they, they, they're pretty good at math. <laughs> <laughs> Stereotypes exist for a reason. They exist for a reason. I mean, they're counting on abacuses when we were still using computers or using calculators out on the street. First time in China in 93, I mean, you'd go buy something and moving an abacus around to figure out how much you owe. <laughs> what the hell is that? How does that work? People still use these? Uh, they were still used in carbon paper, and I think still do to a, to a degree there uh, when, when putting receipts together. But that was a tough time. But delegating that to my wife, putting her in charge of that was really a fundamentally important decision. You got to look at the 80-20 rule. To try to stay in control of every aspect, uh, it's not good. You gotta you gotta look at the things that are the hardest to replace, and the hardest to replace is going to be me writing and creating product, but writing checks and paying bills and coming up with the budget and analyzing where the money's going and so on. That's not my number one skill. I'm pretty good at doing money math, but I'd rather, if I have a choice of writing an email or looking over a financial statement, I'd rather write the email. <laughs> yeah. See? So people are often shocked when uh, I tell them that I don't remember the last time I was even in a bank. To go into a bank to make a deposit or to, or to withdraw money or something... I don't do it. It's not something I do. It's all handled for me, which is a good thing. So despite all my success, <laughs> despite all I've done, you know, I, I'm not sitting around holding on to money and tasting it and smelling it and so on. I, I rarely even see. And so much of it is electronic now anyway. It's, it, it's just an exchange of energy uh, at, at a much different level where I'm sending these credit card numbers across the pond to your bank account. That's really what you're doing? Just numbers? Wow. How about that? And uh, so I would say that during that year in 1996, it, it was tough. And we ended up moving from Santa Cruz County in California to San Jose. Uh, and once I got there, I got even more creative and more opportunities. People had more money. They, they thought about business more. Then when we moved from San Jose to Tampa, that was a, a big, big life change. 
And I'll tell you what, part of what precipitated that, when we're in San Jose, again, getting back to Brian Tracy, I was listening to his audio tapes, and I think the course, uh, it was the psychology of a discipline, self-discipline, or something on focus, one of those two. But he was talking about the importance of saving 10% of your income off the top, pay yourself first, regardless of how many bills you have, regardless of how much you owe everybody else, they can wait, you pay yourself first. And this activates what he called the law of accumulation. You have this don't touch savings account. Well, I had heard this numerous times and started it, but didn't stick with it. My wife heard it one time. <laughs> and she looked at me and made the comment that we need to do this. This makes total sense. She then began to put not just pay the bills and so on as she'd been doing, but to pay us first 10%. That changed everything. Now, people look at that and they, they surmise and think in a left brain way about it. They think, well, let's say I make 100 grand a year and I take 10%. At the end of a year, I have $10,000. At the end of 10 years, I only have $100,000. How is this going to help me that much? What they're missing is that this bank account is a seed. It's, it activates the law of accumulation. It does not activate the law of same old, same old. You start putting away, let's say, $1,000 a month. Maybe that's all you put away, or it's $500 a month. In the beginning, that's all you're putting away, and your income is the same. But something happens, and your income goes up. So guess what? So does the 10% amount. That goes up. And then your income goes up again, and so does the 10%. And what started off with a $500 or $1,000 check to yourself that goes into your bank account, it's now $5,000 or $10,000 or $100,000. That's what people miss. It's, there's a, there is a right brain way of looking at this where you realize we're we're putting nature into this bank account. We're putting in a seed, and this seed is going to grow a massive tree with a lot of fruit on it. And each each piece of fruit, when you slice it open, has multiple seeds, each of which will grow another tree, which will have two three hundred uh, pieces of fruit. Let's say apples or oranges or whatever. Each of those can be sliced in half. So from one seed, you can create an entire uh, field, pasture, orchard, or forest of trees from one. So this, again, from tiny beginnings, great things happen. Great things don't happen from great things. They happen from tiny and small beginnings. This is the power of that. This is the right brain way of looking at it, or let's say the spiritual way of looking at it. The linear bean counter accountant, accountant way 
is say, well, it's only $1,000 after 10 years, you know, I only got, or say, $1,000 a month over a year is 12000 over 10 years, 120000 That's still nothing. Well, first of all, it's not nothing. But nothing stays the same either. When you get this law of accumulation going, you think of a snowball on the top of a hill and you start rolling it down the hill. At first, you you got to work kind of hard to get more snow to pack to that snowball. Once it gets to a certain size, it all you have to do is push it a little bit and it doubles in size. That's that's the way money works when you are conscious of it and when you uh, you understand that it's a seed. It isn't actually a physical thing. That's my that's my way of looking at it and I first learned that from Brian Tracy, you know, other people, Jim Rohn and others talked about it in the same kind of tone. I thought, all right, well, they came before me. They've done pretty well. W. Clement Stone, same idea. I'm gonna I'm gonna put some time into this and let's stand back and see what happens. There's other things I've learned from people, even well-known, rich, famous people. And I would say, I don't agree. Based on my experience, I think that that's hokum. But this law of accumulation, it's not. It really does work. And um, But for, for some people, the one thing, the one caveat I would say is, if 10% is psychologically too much for you to handle, that it scares the hell out of you, then make it 5% or make it 1%. And then stand back and over time observe what happens, that it actually works, and then you can increase the percentage. But ideally it's 10%, but the most important factor is that you, you actually have some trust and belief in the process rather than fear. If you're going to be afraid that it's not going to work, well, then it's not going to work. But if you can minimize that negative emotion and put in, put in one to five to ten percent, then uh, you go into it with a lot better uh, sensibility and uh, a lot more trust. The the best because the best thing is after you put that money away, you forget about it because you're not planning on using it anyway. It's a magnet account. It's not uh, put it away and then use it. It's a magnet. And then you have another savings account at some point where that is for spending. That is for you. You think of the average person who doesn't even have $1,000 in his bank account. Not even $1,000. That means that he or she can really use this, this principle. Yep. But you have to have... You have to have um, some trust in the process and, and focus mostly on the process. I think where a lot of people get confused and have trouble is they're so focused on the end result of making millions of dollars, uh, being financially independent, that they forget that the most important part of the equation is the process. Follow the process. And you can, you can put about 0.01% focus on the actual end result goal and make the end result 
the process. Make that 99.99% of your focus. And you'll be amazed that the end result goal will take care of itself. You almost don't even need to think about it. But if you focus on the end result too much and it frightens you, it, maybe I can, maybe I can't, then you don't even take action. You don't even do the things you need to do. There's no chance you're going to make it happen because you're not following any you're not following any process that's going to get you there. The whole key is to understand you're on a journey, and when you're on a journey, you have to move. It's not simply focusing on being at the end of the journey. <laughs> yeah. you, you can do that, but if you're not moving along the way, it's not going to do you any good. That, that is so true, and wow. Guys, if you're going to listen to listen to this whole show again, please, I know I keep saying that, but you got to realize, season four of my show is known as the Legend season, because that's all I've brought you, is absolute top-shelf people, and Matt is no different for this. Uh, if not, I'd say he's right up there. And that was probably one of the greatest things ever. And advice, by the way, uh, I still use. I mean, I, I walked away from that stupidly and i paid the consequences so i'm actually back on that same uh same thing where i basically pay myself first before everyone else matt thank you so 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 very much for taking the time today to actually be with us i know um i know we've had like a few scheduling conflicts as i mentioned but man you just you just brought it today and, and i cannot thank you enough well i'm very pleased to uh, be with you and your audience and i sincerely trust not hope, <laughs> trust that uh, they got a lot of value from this. Oh, I'm sure they did. And I know they did because I got a lot of value from this. So I know for a fact they did too. Guys, go check out Matt's site, mattfury.com. Also check out furyfaithful.com. And if you get the chance, I'm actually not kidding about this. If you get the chance, uh, Matt, you have a Facebook group. You have a couple of Facebook groups, but Look up some of his Facebook groups that you can get a, be a part of. Subscribe to his newsletter. Get inside Matt's products in any simple way that you can. Um, just simply because they will literally change the way that you do business for the better. Um, and I, I can say that as someone that has actually done some of Matt's work from like being a, an apprentice for some people that love Matt as much as I do, to just like constantly re-embodying and just even his free stuff is incredible. So Matt, again, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you for being here and sharing so much amazing wisdom. You're very welcome, and I look forward to communicating with you sometime in the future. Most definitely, my friend. Guys, take care, and I will see you on the next episode of Adam Marcy Unplugged.